We're going to be picking up in Matthew 15 again this morning. The reason why we read that passage is because it has to do with what we're going to read today. It's pretty incredible. I'll, I'll try to explain it. Um, in that story, Elijah is the prophet of God. He's God's uh, chosen man, so to speak. And in that story, uh, he's rejected by Israel. Israel turns away to false gods, and so God brings on a drought. And so God sends Elijah to Sidon, uh, Tyre and Sidon, which uh, are Gentile cities. He sends his prophet for, the, for his people, the Jews, to the Gentiles. And while he's there, he multiplies bread and brings the resurrection of the dead. What we will see over the next few weeks in Matthew chapter 15 is that God's chosen servant, Jesus, was rejected by the Jews after he multiplied bread for them, was sent to the same city, Tyre and Sidon, in this passage. We'll have a discussion about bread and is multiplying himself as the bread of life, which we learned a few weeks ago, and will provide also the resurrection of the dead through the gospel. And so there's a whole lot more there, but go and read 1 Kings 17 again and read Matthew chapter 14 and 15 again, and you will see very clearly that Jesus is the greater Elijah in this passage, that he is fulfilling the ministry of Elijah. So let's read the passage, and uh, I just want to have that context in your mind that Jesus is also going to the Gentile city to provide the bread of life and the resurrection. Uh, and salvation here in the same way that God did with Elijah. So if you found your way, Matthew chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 21 through 28 this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow, bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the miracle of Scripture. Lord, we, we can clearly see from reading your word that this is a book that is inspired by you, that this is not the the fabrications or fantasies of men that uh, no, no man that has ever walked to earth is intelligent enough to lay things out the way that you have. And so we know that this is a divine book. We know that this is your word. And because of that, Lord, as a man myself, uh, I cannot uh, faithfully explain this word without your help. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be uh, the mediator between your word and your people this morning, that he would give us understanding and that uh, you would apply it to our hearts and that you would do a perfect work in each heart represented in this room. In Christ's name, amen. 
So the title of this message this morning is Humility with Hope. Humility with Hope. There's four things that I want you to see in this passage. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you for those of you that are taking notes. The first thing we'll see is the woman's petition. The second thing that we'll see is the woman's persistence. The third thing that we will see is the woman's proclamation. And the fourth thing that we will see is the woman's prize. So let's get our context here again. I gave you the context in, the, in Elijah's ministry, but in the immediate context here in chapter 15, you remember that Jesus had this conversation uh, where he was challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees on the washing of hands and the tradition. And Pastor Chris mentioned that uh, a couple weeks ago. And the point that Jesus was making is, is that what God has written is the authority over us, not necessarily men's opinions of it or, the, or what's called the oral Torah or the oral tradition. Uh, and so Jesus was not obligated to follow the opinions of men, but he was obligated to follow what God had written, and the same applies to us today. He explained in this passage uh, previously that it's not what comes or not what goes into a person that defiles them that makes them unclean. It's actually what comes out of a person. And so his explanation was is that the heart of God's people was defiled, and so what came out of them was therefore sinful. And so the solution was not a law that changed the actions. The solution was a, a heart that changed the actions, which is not something that any of us can do. We can do a lot of things on the outside, but we can't change the inside. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000. He talks to them about being the bread of life, that he is the bread that came from heaven. And you remember, there's a whole, we could do a whole biblical theology of bread in the scriptures, but if you go back far, than a, far enough, you remember uh, in the wilderness, God provided bread from heaven for his people who were starving. And he gave them this bread called manna, which came from heaven that they ate and that they were able to have life because of that. And so Jesus, again, is alluding to that. If I am the true bread from heaven that everyone needs, that everyone is starving, everyone is dying or dead, and the only way for them to be satisfied and fulfilled and made whole and have spiritual life is to, is to be in me, to have uh, this bread from heaven. So that's the context of what we're leading up to here. Now, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees rejected this message. They rejected uh, Jesus because of this. And so just like Elijah, Jesus is now sent to Tyre and Sidon. These are uh, Phoenician cities um, in the Middle East. They're, these are Gentile regions. So, this, so Jesus is now leaving basically the, the Israeli people and is now moving towards people who are outside the covenant of God who are Gentiles. And this woman comes out of the city to meet him. Matthew tells us the reason why Jesus and his disciples were going here was to basically not draw attention to themselves. So the whole point was for him to go out of Israel where nobody would, would probably know him, where he could kind of rest for a while. You remember the whole chapter 14, he's just trying to get some rest, and everywhere he goes, somebody's following him. Well, guess what? The Gentiles had heard of him too. And so this woman comes out as he's going to rest, and she petitions him. So let's look at the woman's petition here in verse 21 uh, through 23. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that region came, came and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. 
So there's a couple things here. First, let's talk about the characters uh, in this passage. We've got two characters here. We've got the Canaanite woman, and we've got the son of David. So you'll notice in the other Gospels, when they refer to this woman, they call her a Syrophoenician woman, which is, which is technically correct in their day, that she was from a Syrophoenician culture, and so they referred to her as a Syrophoenician. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman on purpose. And the reason why is because even though the Canaanites were not necessarily a modern-day people there, he, again, is pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, in the Old Testament, this is a Gentile woman. She is a Canaanite. She is an enemy of God. She is a worshiper of false gods. And so Matthew is wanting to make the kind of the Old Testament parallel clear. You have to remember that in the, each of the four Gospels has a specific theme or purpose that it's trying to point to regarding Jesus. Matthew's function is establishing Jesus as the, as the Jewish Messiah, as the Messiah of Israel. So, in, so he's talking to a Jewish audience here, and he's saying, I just want to make clear, this isn't a Jewish woman in another town. This woman is a pagan. She worships false gods. She is among a people that are not the covenant people of God. She is not in the covenant. He's trying to make that clear, and we'll understand why in just a little bit. So he's intentionally calling her a Canaanite and not a Syrophoenician. The, the other thing is, is that she uses the term son of David here. So referring to Jesus as the son of David is saying, you are the Messiah, which means even though this woman was not a Jew, she knew enough Jewish theology that she recognized him as the Messiah or literally anointed one, the, the chosen one by God as the savior of his people. And so she calls out to him as the son of David, as Messiah. So she recognized who he was. She, was, she didn't just think that he was some kind of magician or some kind of Hebrew prophet. She said, you are the son of David. Now, you've got to understand, they didn't refer to other prophets that way. Nobody called Elijah the son of David. Nobody called uh, Malachi the son of David. No, nobody called them that. That was a specific name only for the Messiah. Because remember, the promise is that there will be a king that will come out of David's descendant. And Jesus Matthew in the genealogy in the beginning points to the fact that Jesus is blood related to David through his mother and he's related to David through his father by adoption. And so in both cases, Jesus is uh, related by blood and by adoption. And so, and we are as well. But the, the, the point that she's making here is, is I know who you are. I know that you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one of God. And then let's notice the quiet if you first read this text, and when I first read it, there's some things in here that seem a little unusual for Jesus. The fact that this woman calls out for help and even acknowledges him as Messiah, you're thinking certainly that Jesus is going to respond because he's going to think, well, this woman obviously knows who I am. The Jews just rejected me. They don't know who I am, but this Gentile woman knows who I am, and yet he, he doesn't respond to her. He ignores her. Why is that? There's a couple, read, a couple reasons. One, is uh, in general, it was unusual for Jewish men to speak to foreign women. Just culturally, uh, if, if you're a Jewish man and you're in a foreign city and a woman comes up and speaks to you, usually she doesn't have any, uh, anything good to be talking to you about. And so in general, uh, a man would not speak to a woman, or even culturally today in Middle Eastern cultures, the, a man would speak to a woman's husband, but he wouldn't speak to her necessarily because that was seen as inappropriate. Uh, for them to be having a conversation. So that was part of it, which is also, if you remember the woman at the well in that story, the disciples are questioning Jesus of why are you sitting here alone talking to this woman? They thought it was unusual because that wasn't a normal thing that Jewish men would do, um, especially with a Samaritan woman in that case. The other thing is, 
is that her, her greeting to him was inappropriate as a Gentile. So she was a Gentile woman using a Jewish uh, term with Jesus. So she was appealing to him basically on behalf of the covenant. She was saying, uh, you are the covenant promised one of Israel, and so I'm calling you out based on your covenant name, the son of David. And his response is, but you're not in the covenant. You're a Gentile. You don't, you don't have the right to call me that. The Jews have the right to call on the Messiah because he's their Messiah. They're God's chosen people. The Gentiles do not have the right to call on Jesus as a Messiah in this case because they are not Jewish, right? And we understand later on, of course, and we'll see some of it in this text. Matthew actually points it out a lot if you go back and look through it. But ultimately, Paul says it was the mystery that was revealed to him is that Gentiles were always in the covenant, but that was not revealed at this time in Jesus' ministry. So this is the reason why Jesus was quiet to her is basically, uh, I, don't, I don't owe you a conversation because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm connected with Israel. I'm Israel's Messiah. I'm not your Messiah. Um, you don't even have a Messiah in your theology because your people worship pagan gods. So this is why he's quiet. So why, so why does the woman come and ask? She asks because she has nothing to lose. The worst that can happen is she's rejected by Jesus, which... According to the Jews, she would have already been anyways if he was the Jewish Messiah. How many times do we not receive things from God because we just don't ask? We just assume that he doesn't want to help us or that he does, or we think our prayers are too small or our concerns are too small. So, so what, is the, what is the help that you're missing in your life today just because you haven't asked God for it? Um, sometimes we think it has to be a really big spiritual problem. It can't just be a small everyday thing. But uh, for this woman, she had nothing to lose, and so she wasn't afraid to just step out and ask and see what would happen. Second thing I want you to notice in this text is the woman's persistence. Get verses uh, 23 again through 25. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. So uh, I'm not a very emotive person. Like, I don't, I don't express myself very well. So I can't do a good job of impersonating this woman. But in the text, when, when, when the disciples are, are imploring Jesus, they're saying, this lady keeps shouting at us. Like, literally, this woman is basically chasing them and constantly yelling, help me, son of David, Lord, help me. Uh, just like a like a crazy woman, okay? She's just you know just help me, and uh, and she's she's so desperate when she's calling out here, and so we see an exclamation point. And we're like, well, yeah, that means like she was excited, but the, but the the language there is really more of this just desperate cry of like grabbing onto his leg, like when it says she bowed down, it's just, just help me, like get in front of him, lay down in front of him so he can't walk anywhere else, and corner him. And you have to help me. That's where this lady is at. And so we see her persistence. She didn't just ask the one time when he ignored her, but then she chases him of like, I'm going to follow you and yell at you in front of everybody until you give me an answer. This woman was persistent. So we, we see two things about her persistence here. We see that there's a, there's a continued request, right? She doesn't give up. So this woman knew that there would be no more opportunities for help. If Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, he's not going to be hanging out in Gentile territory for a long time. She may never see him again. This may be the only opportunity that she has to speak with Jesus, and she couldn't let it go. 
She couldn't let it pass by. Think about how many opportunities we let pass by because we just tire out or we just don't put in the effort and the opportunity passes us by. This woman was willing to lay herself down in front of Jesus, stop him from walking and say, I, before you go, you have to hear what I have to say. And she, she was continuing to do that. And she knew there was no one else that can help. When, when you're talking about something like, like demon possession in this case, this isn't something uh, like, uh, you know, you go get a witch doctor and they give you some herbs or something and it casts a demon out or whatever. You're talking about spiritual power. And these people knew enough to know that when it comes to spiritual power, we have no ability as human beings. Uh, we're perfectly capable of being victims. We're not capable of being victorious when it comes to spiritual matters because we're sinful and because we have no authority. And so she knew there's only one person more powerful than a demon that has more spiritual authority to command a demon to leave my daughter, and that is God. That is his Messiah. And if Jesus commands that demon to leave, there's no discussion about it. There's no debate. You ever notice that? It's not, you know, he has to persuade them. You've got these other guys that are trying to kind of do these incantations and things to try to cast demons out. Jesus, just get out. It's settled. That, that's the end of it because he has ultimate authority. He, he created those demons. They're his demons. They, they belong to him in the sense that he can do with them whatever he pleases. And so if he says, I'm commanding you to get out, they, as rebellious as they are, they can't rebel against him. You, you remember... The man in the Gadarenes, right? The demon-possessed man out in the tombs when they come out there, they knew who he was. You know, why are you here, son of God? Have you come here to torment us? They knew if he wants to, he can cast us into hell right now, forever. And so we better do what he says. And, and so this woman understood the authority of Jesus of, There's no, there is nobody else other than this one man that I can go to that can help me with this problem. Nobody else can. So she continued in her request. The other thing that we see is that this is a covenant reminder because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Again, he's not her Messiah in the technical sense. But we also see in Romans 11 when Paul talks about the olive tree of faith, and he talks about how there were some of those in the olive tree of faith, which is Israel, that were cast off because of their unbelief. Those branches were cast off. And there were other that were wild olive shoots, which are the Gentiles that are grafted into that tree of faith. And so again, Paul, this mystery was revealed to Paul, so he explains it to us in his writings. So even though she's not the Jewish Messiah, she can still be grafted into the people of God because the, the secret is that Paul reveals to us is that we've all been saved by the faith of Abraham, not the genealogy of Abraham. So you don't have to have Jewish DNA to have a Jewish Messiah. You have to have Jewish faith to have a Jewish Messiah. And this woman did. I want to read this quote from, from James Montgomery Boyce. As I was studying this week, it, it, he just summarized it so well, um, I just have to read it to you because I think when you, t when you think of this woman's persistence and the fact that she wasn't willing to let go, um, there's so many parallels in the scriptures and so many things that we've seen in history, and he just alludes to this. So this is what he said about it. He said, I do not think there is much of this strong, persistent prayer in our day, at least not in affluent Western lands. We are too busy to pray and too confident. It was different in previous centuries. The great, awakening, the great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards began with his famous call to prayer, and it was carried forward by prayer. 
In the 18th century, a revival began in a small town in Ireland that eventually spread through the entire country. It started with seven ministers who committed themselves to pray regularly, fervently, and persistently for revival. When John Wesley and George Whitfield began their work, England was in spiritual stupor, a moral abyss. But a little group of believers began to pray, and God sent a revival that transformed England and even spilled over into the New World. One reason we do not have great blessing today is that there is not much of that dogged prayer and persistent faith seen in the Canaanite woman. If we want to see Waynesville transformed for the gospel, this is the city that God has given to us as a church. It will not happen without persistent prayer. We can't pray one time and ask for God to bring revival. That's not how it works. We have to do like this woman does. We have to get in God's way and say, God, if you won't save Waynesville, we, we are not going to stop asking until you do it. We're not going to stop asking until you save that family member or that coworker or that person that I meet at the restaurant or the person that bags my groceries. God, I'm not going to stop until you save that person. If we don't have that uh, conviction and persistence, we won't get an answer. If this woman gave up here in the story, she would not have received her answer, and we won't either. The third thing is, the woman's uh, proclamation. Look at verses uh, 26 and 27 there. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So there's a, a couple types of, of faith that we have to look at comparing this woman to the Jews who Jesus was previously with. The, the scribes and the Pharisees who Jesus was, was preaching the gospel to uh, their faith was in miracles. That was their faith. We'll see this later on in the chapel, and, and in, the, in the chapter, they'll come to him again and say, "Do a sign for us, so that we know that you're the Son of God," as though he hadn't been doing that the whole time. But their faith was in miracles, and so uh, they were the children that refused the bread. God said, "This, this is the bread of life. This is your Messiah. This is your Savior that I've sent to you," and they've they've rejected it. They've said. He's the stone that the builders rejected, right, is what the Scriptures say. That's become the chief cornerstone. So God and His covenant faithfulness provided the Messiah that was needed for His people to be saved. He provided this bread from heaven that if they would partake of it, if they would receive that bread, then they would also receive life. This is the point that Jesus was making to them. But instead of them having faith in the Messiah, they had faith in miracles. And so what they wanted was uh, power. They wanted to see the power of God. They weren't concerned about salvation from their sin because they didn't think they needed it. They thought, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I, I'm, I'm one of God's chosen people. The, the whole, the temple, the priest, everything, all that is about me and, and, how, and how good I am before God. And it's clear from the way that they said, look, I follow all these laws. I even follow the oral tradition. I obey everything. So God should be pleased with me because of my obedience. And so the miracles we're just God's blessings. And so, God, I just want you to bless me more and more and more. Do more and more and more miracles for me. Make my life more happy, more comfortable, better in every way. Does that sound familiar today? So like many in prosperity and, and self-help churches today, the Jews were trusting in Jesus for entertainment and ease of life by his miracles. Are you following Christ today only because you want a breakthrough from hardship in life? Are you like the Jews and you've come to Jesus because he's going to make your marriage better or he's going to give you more finances or he's going to improve your health, get you that job that you want? Then you're going to end up like they are. You're, you're, you're rejecting Christ. 
with the appearance of accepting Christ, but you're, you're rejecting him. You want him for his benefits, not for who he is. And they wanted Jesus for the miracles, not because he was the Messiah. But let's contrast that with this woman. This woman didn't have faith in the miracles. She had faith in Christ. Because she received the bread that the children rejected. She's the dog in the story, and she knows that. Now, let's talk about this. Why is she referred to as a dog here? Because it sounds like, Jesus, that's kind of mean, just calling this poor woman a dog. Why is that? Well, there's more than one word for dog in, in Greek, and this is different than what you might expect. There's a word for dog which refers to a street dog. These are you know, wild dogs that would just run around and eat trash and attack people or do whatever. That's not the word that Jesus uses. The, you, the word literally means little dog, but the way that it, that it would be translated for us to understand is a pet dog or like a lap dog. So like my dog is like this big, and he barks a lot, but he can't really do anything. And, and my kids love him, and they like, they like him to sit in their lap, and they like to give him a little scratch from the table, even though I tell him not to. And, you know, uh, that's the relationship that they have with this little house dog. This is what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, remember when they would eat, they would lie down. They didn't have chairs like we did, so they would lie down on their side. And he's saying, when the master is lying down at the table eating, and his little puppy, his little dog, is laying right there with him, and he's eating. Uh, he's not going to take the bread that he bought for his kids or that he made for his kids and give that to the dog. And she's saying, yes, but while he's eating, while the children are eating and their crumbs fall, the puppy will eat them up off the floor. The pup, there's, there's, there's enough left over for the puppy. This is, this, this is what's happening in, in the story here. And so it's an endearing term. So he's saying, listen, as a Gentile, you are not in the covenant people of God. You do not receive the benefits of the covenant. You do not receive the Messiah of the covenant because this, this is for Israel and you are not in Israel. And she's not denying that. So she humbles herself. Remember, in the beginning, she comes and refers to him as the son of David. She's saying, you should do this for me. And he ignores her. Now, here, she's confessing, you know what, Jesus? I am the puppy. That I'm, okay, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with just being the dog in the master's house, and the crumbs that come from the children are enough for me. I'm okay with just a little bit. Epiphanius the Latin, an early church father, said it this way, the Canaanite woman was in effect saying, you came to the Jews and they didn't want you. What they turned down, give to us. So the Gentile woman was trusting in Jesus as the God who could do what no one else could. Have you abandoned all hope of salvation apart from Christ this morning? This is the question. And we ask it often because it's so easy for us to rely on our own works, our own merit, our own status, our own perceived goodness, and think that that's good enough. This woman didn't do that. She said, Jesus, I'm not asking to be a child. Remember the, the story of the prodigal son? If I, if I could just go work in my father's house, it would be better than where I'm living at now. And he comes back. And yet, what is the heart of the father in that story? The heart of the father is, is no, you're going to bring him a robe. You're going to bring him shoes. You're going to put a ring on him. We're having a celebration because my son was dead and now he's alive. So, so those who come to God in humility, recognizing their separation from him, recognizing their unworthiness of his grace, are always met with the grace of God. God, the way that God says it is, he resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. God hates pride, 
And the reason why is because pride is ignorance, because people who know who God is and know who they are are not proud people. Pride is us thinking that God is closer to us than he actually is. When we see him as he is, this is why we worship every week. When you see these songs, when you hear the word proclaimed, when you uh, examine yourself at the table, the more that you do that, the more separation you should feel between you and God. If you're singing songs and, and hearing preaching that's making you feel like, uh, like your works and, and who you are as a person is, is really close to God and he's just right there and you've just got to reach out and get him, that's, that's not correct. The correct is, is, is holiness is separation. And when we truly understand who God is, we see how far off he is from us and we realize the, the vast distance that he has had to go to bring us to himself. And the response of that is all in worship. And so this is why we want to sing songs that exalt Christ, why we want to preach the scriptures and preach a big view of God, a big view of Christ on the cross, because the, the, the bigger that you understand God, the smaller you get, and that's a good thing. Because the smaller that you get in your own eyes and the bigger that God gets in your eyes, guess what? The, 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 the response to that is you get more grace, which we all need. If you're struggling in your life today, if you need God's grace in an area of your life, the response to that is worship. The response to that, you don't need a self-help book. You don't need uh, whatever. You need to examine Christ. Meditate on this word. Read it. Meditate on it and say, where am I in the story and where is Christ in the story? And you're not David and you're not whatever. We've all heard that, right? You're not, you're not, you're not the point. You, you're the dog at the table. This woman got this. She, I'm not asking to be a son. I'm not asking for all your covenant blessings. I'm not even asking for the salvation of my sins. But I am asking you for something that's impossible to do in this situation. So have you abandoned all hope of salvation from Christ this morning? Or uh, uh, apart from Christ? Have you, have you said, if it's not Jesus, it's nothing. I, I can't bring anything. This woman has thrown herself down before Jesus and said, I just want a crumb from the table. And, and you think about it, okay? She's asking for a miracle that no one can do. She's asking for a demon to be cast out, okay? Again, no man, no human can do this, and she's requesting this from Jesus, and she refers to it as a crumb. So how big is God in her mind for her to say, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are so powerful that for me to ask you to do this impossible thing is such a small thing for you that it's a crumb. I'm not asking you to do something that's hard for you, but I'm asking you to do something that's impossible for me. What's, it, what's impossible for man is possible with God. And we can do all things through Christ. And we, and we mean that in here. She could only do this through Christ. She was trusting in him alone for the salvation of her daughter in this situation. And we must do the same thing. Lastly, let's look at the woman's prize in verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Do you, do you remember when you, when you believed the gospel and, and you heard that in your heart of, of God saying yes when you cried out to him to sal for salvation and you said, I need your forgiveness. I need you to do an impossible work in my heart that I cannot do. And do you remember that feeling of the, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God, and that peace and assurance that you had of the answer is yes. You are saved. 
it's easy for us to forget that. We get so caught up in the cares of life that we forget that time where we saw ourselves undone before God and we saw how holy he was and how unholy we were and how separate we were from him. And we called out to him for mercy and the answer was exactly like he said to this woman, it shall be done for you as you wish. That's good news. She's rewarded for two things here. She's rewarded for her humility. So this, these are far-off miracles. So there's, there, there's two interactions with Gentiles that we see, both in Matthew. This woman and the centurion. If you remember a few ch- chapters ago, we had the centurion. Did you ever notice that both of those miracles are done remotely? Jesus goes to travel to the centurion's house. The centurion says, no, all you have to do is say the word and it's done. And in this case, he says, it will be done for you as you wish, and it says immediately that woman's daughter was healed. Why do you think it is that with Jews, he's doing an in-person ministry, and with the Gentiles, he's doing it remotely? The reason why is because the Gentiles are a far-off people. They're not the covenant people. They're separated from the covenant of God. And yet, Jesus here, by performing the miracle remotely, is illustrating that my grace is able to extend beyond my covenant with Israel to every nation, that I have just as much authority over demon possession for a girl across the world as I do right here, and that basically my grace can, my salvation can reach anyone that I desire to reach, and so he can, he can do this, he illustrates this here. The other thing is these are far off people because it's a Gentile woman, and the centurion also was a Gentile. It's interesting to notice this. In the Gospels, these are the only two people that, are, that Jesus says have great faith. It's Gentiles. It's not, it's not the Jews. You would think it would be the Jews of, because there were Jews that were following him, right? It mentions this all the time. You know, we hear about people going away, but there were people that followed Jesus throughout his ministry that did faithfully follow him and believe the gospel. There were people that, that truly did not reject him and did follow him. Uh, remember on the, re- remote, on the road to Emmaus, there were the two disciples there that obviously believed in Jesus in Messiah, as Messiah, and we're talking about these kind of things. And so there were people that followed him faithfully, but for some reason Jesus doesn't point that out. But in the Gospels, it points out that the Gentiles had this great faith. The other thing that's interesting is is there's only two instances where the Bible says that Jesus marveled at someone's faith or that he was astonished. And guess what? It was this woman and the centurion. So it's only with these two examples of great faith that Jesus marvels, that he's excited about that he's astonished by of wow look at the faith that this person that doesn't know the covenant of god they don't have the bible they didn't have the old testament they don't know the scriptures they didn't grow up in synagogue they know nothing about god and yet their faith is so great that it's astonishing compared to a jewish person that grew up with all the benefits of the law all the benefits of the covenant and yet would not accept their own messiah how incredible is that And so she was rewarded for her humility. So was the centurion, this man who was in authority, who humbled himself again to come to Jesus to ask him to do something that was impossible. And then we also see that she was rewarded for for honor because she honored him, right? So how did she honor Jesus? For one, she trusted in his nature. She believed that he was God, which is why she could ask him for the impossible. Uh, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. That, that will never change from, from the time that he was uh, born on this earth until and, and forever. He will always be fully human and fully divine. And this woman had the faith to believe that Jesus was God. 
because she wasn't just asking him to do a prophetic work. She didn't have, she didn't know what that was. She was a Gentile woman. She wasn't asking him to uh, cast some kind of spell on her daughter or anything. She was saying, this is a demon that has possessed my daughter, that has spiritual authority over my daughter, and the only person that can tell it to go away is God. And that's why I'm asking you, because I recognize your divine nature. I see who you are. And so she honored him by seeing his nature. But the other thing is that she trusted his character. The great thing about Jesus is that not only is he divine, but that he's kind. Aren't you glad? You realize if Jesus, if Jesus uh, was wrathful with us, he still deserves our worship because he's God. He, there is no other. There's no one else that deserves worship other than him. And yet his mercy and his kindness and his grace and his love and all these, these attributes that he shows to us that we're unworthy of, that we don't deserve to even know at all that they exist, not only does he reveal them to us, but he applies them to us. And so this God, it, it, you should worship him out of duty. You should, because he's worthy of it. But it really makes you want to when you understand his heart, when you understand his kindness. It, it, it increases that love and affection that you have for him. And again, this is why we we sing and we come to the table. And we, when we come to the table in a few moments, consider the love of Christ. We don't deserve any of this. We don't have to be in this covenant. God didn't have to make a covenant with Abraham. He could have, he could have destroyed the whole world like he did with the flood and just said, I'm done with you people. And yet he didn't do it. So because she believed he was God, she knew that he could do the miracle. But because she believed in his character, she asked, his mercy because she believed that in his kindness he would hear her and that he would answer her. Maybe today you're like one of these Gentiles. You feel like you're far off from God. You feel like you've done things in your life or experienced things or made decisions or things have happened to you that have separated you so far from God that you hear all this and you hear about the love of Christ and you hear about forgiveness and you're like, that sounds so good. I would really love to have peace with God. I would really love to be able to make things right with others, but I just can't. I've done too much in my life. I'm too far from God. Maybe you feel that way. You need to do what this woman did. You need to trust in his kindness, and you need to ask him for the impossible this morning, which is the forgiveness of your sins. That's what's really impossible. Asking Jesus to, to cast out a demon isn't hard. Asking Jesus to suffer for you on the cross to take your punishment that's a little bit harder it was hard enough that he sweat drops of blood when he considered it in the garden and yet he still did it why because of his kindness because that's the heart that he has towards his people so if you're one of those people this morning and you feel like i can't come to him i'm, I'm too far my life's not cleaned up enough i've got too much baggage this woman did too but she knew that he was the only one that could do anything about it, and she knew that he was kind enough that she, if she came to him and asked, that he was going to give her the answer that she needed. And he'll give you that answer t today too, as Chris reminded us recently. He said, I won't cast away anyone that comes to me. That's a promise. That's a promise this morning that no matter what you've done, where you've been, what's happened to you, what's going on in your life, there is a promise from Jesus that he will not turn away one person that comes to him in faith. And so 
Don't wait today. So ask him for the impossible, the forgiveness of your sins. If you need something from God this morning, it could be a variety of things. We all have needs constantly. It might be a spiritual need. It might be a physical need. It might be a health need. It could, it could be a variety of things. We're needy people. Um, everything that we have comes from God, and we always need more from him than, than what we have. If you need something from him this morning, you need to cast all of your hope in your own ability out. Just throw it out. You ever get exhausted? You're just trying to make something happen. I'm trying to get a car right now, and I spent so many hours this week shopping for a car online. I exhausted myself. I just wore myself out. It's so easy just in our own strength of just to bear down. I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to do more. I'm going to do whatever to get that thing that I need in my life. You can't do it. God will give me a car when he's good and ready. And he'll give you what you need. But you do have to ask. You have not because you ask not. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give you whatever it is that you want. If you have worldly request, obviously he's not going to answer that because it's not for your good, but he will give you what's good for you. That's a, that's a promise. It doesn't always feel good, but it is good. So you need to call out to him in prayer like this woman persistently, going to him on behalf of this need over and over and over again of God, until you answer this prayer, until you feel this need in my life, until I hear from you, I'm not going to stop. And I'm begging you and asking you to answer this prayer for me because I can't do it. My pastor can't do it. Nobody else can do it. The guy on TV can't do it. The guy that wrote the best-selling book can't do it. None of these people can do it. It's only you. There is nobody else for me to ask. And so I'm just going to ask you until I get an answer. I can tell you in our growth group, people in here that are in my growth group on Tuesday nights can tell you, we, we have like a running list of answered prayers in our group that are, in, in a way I wonder sometimes if the Lord's kind of setting us up because they get answered so quickly that it's like, okay, what happens when we actually do get a, a hard one that doesn't come in a week or whatever? Um, because he answers them pretty quick for us. Um, but we're praying for one another and we're doing that. And we ask for things like jobs and vehicles and health situations and these other things that seem like small things. And you know what? He answers those. Why? Because we ask. And why does he answer them? Because he's kind and he loves us and he wants to bless us and he wants us to have joy. Not in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense, he wants us to have those things. So uh, Augustine said it well. He said it in just a few words compared to what all I said. But the point here, the title of the message was Humility with Hope, because that's where this woman was, was at. Augustine said it this way. He said, hills repel water, but valleys are filled up. So ask yourself this morning, are you a, a hill that's re repelling the water of the grace of God in your life, or are you a valley that's got your hands cut and saying, God, you, you're going to have to fill me up. I, I need more from you today than I did before. So my prayer this morning is that for each of us, as we consider this woman in this text, that we, we would be uh, valleys waiting to be filled up with the grace of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the love of God for others, with his, the zeal of God for evangelism, that he would just fill us up as a church and that we would humble ourselves before him and come to him even now as we go in prayer in just a moment, to come to him, begging him to pour out his spirit on this church, begging him to save this city. 80% of this county is not in church right now. 
statistically. And some of the ones that are in church probably aren't hearing a message like this, if we're really honest. We need to, we need to be praying. We need to ask God to do the impossible. It might seem crazy to you to walk out on Main Street in Waynesville, North Carolina and not meet a lost person, but God can do it. But he's not going to do it if we don't ask. Father, we need impossible works from you. Lord, there's some of us here today that are far off from you, that we've heard messages like these, we've heard the gospel, maybe we grew up in church, maybe we knew a, a lot of Bible verses or a lot of facts, Lord, but if we look at our lives, if we look at the desires of our heart, we know that it doesn't please you. We know that, that we're separate from you. We know that, Lord, uh, if we were to die today, that we would stand before you on our own works and that every single one of them would be messed up and we would have no hope. Lord, I pray for, for those that are in that situation today, that today would be the day they wouldn't wait any longer, that they would come to you knowing that you will not turn them away, that you will have the kindness that you had with this woman, that if they will just confess to you that they need you to do the impossible work of salvation in their heart, that they need a new heart, that you have promised that you will give it to them. If they will just completely surrender themselves to you this morning and acknowledge you as Lord, I pray that they would do that today before they leave. Lord, for many of us, we have impossible situations in our lives. Maybe it's health struggles, financial difficulty, uh, physical ailments, uh, Lord, emotional problems, uh, mental health struggles, whatever it may be, Lord. We have so many things that medicine can't fix, doctors can't fix, uh, money can't fix. And Lord, we need you to do impossible works in our lives. And we know that if you do then that you'll receive all the glory for it because there's no room for man to boast in impossible works. So we ask, Lord, I, I pray for each one in just a moment as they're coming to you in prayer and, and confessing to you what they need from you, that as they have humbled themselves, Lord, that you would answer those prayers, that you would do impossible works in this room even today in their lives. Lord, I, I look around and I see some who haven't been with us for a long time that we prayed for and we asked you to bring them back. We asked you to restore their health and you did it. And they're an answered prayer in this room this morning and I thank you for that. And Father, for our church, Lord, this, this church is not going to survive because of money. It's not going to survive because of pastors. It's not going to survive because of buildings. It's only going to survive because it's your church. And you said that you're going to build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, if we're honest, there are gates all over this city that need to be kicked in, and the light of the gospel needs to be shine, shine, shown into those places. And Lord, just as this woman asked that you would use your authority uh, to cast the, the demon out of this little girl, Father, there's some demons in our city that need to be cast out. And you've given us the promise that wherever we go with the gospel in this city, that we are going with the authority of Christ himself to work against the devil. And so, Lord, there are so many places that people are in the grip of addiction and sin, loneliness, depression, suicide, uh, divorce. You name it, Lord. You know better than we do the wickedness of human hearts. We have the answer. And so, Father, help us as a church to not give up, to not grow weary in well-doing, because we will receive a reward at the right time. Lord, help our church 
to impact this city this year so that if you come at the end of the year that you can say well done that we used every resource every church member every bit of time and energy that we had available for your gospel work and that Lord we can stand before you and say I've, I've left nothing undone I have completely wrung myself out for the gospel help each one of us to do that all the way from the tiniest believer in this room to the oldest believer in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.